I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 11, looking at the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 11. We're going to work through verse 21 uh, this morning uh, and talk about the Lord's desire for us to be a house of prayer for all nations. Begin at verse 11 of Mark chapter 11, the word of the Lord says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to preach uh, your word, to be able to listen to the word of God preached, to be able to worship and to give freely. And God, we again, as we are every Sunday, uh, are reminded of what a privilege this is and how so many of our brothers and sisters around the world uh, did not have uh, this privilege. And God, we pray for them this morning. We pray for those who are uh, longing after you, who long for just the opportunity to gather together, uh, but must do so under threat of even their own life, Lord. And so we pray, God, that you would strengthen them and encourage them today. And we pray, God, that you would help us in this moment uh, to take seriously uh, the word of God and the gospel that is preached to us. I pray, Lord, you'd help all of us to be faithful hearers and doers of the word. And again, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your church. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, I ask you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at uh, chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11 is uh, the beginning, really, of what's known as Passion Week, or the leading up to what we traditionally think of as Easter or uh, Passover for uh, the Jews, but uh, so Jesus had sort of entered into uh, Jerusalem, what, what we refer to in Scripture and what's probably at the heading of chapter 11 for you is the triumphal entries. That's when Jesus is coming into uh, Jerusalem and he's astride the donkey and they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, praise uh, to uh, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and that is on Monday that he is entering in. And Jesus 
uh, after that event, he uh, goes to the temple and he looks around uh, the temple. Uh, the word says in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany uh, with the twelve since it was already late. So he came into Jerusalem, went to the temple uh, complex, sort of looked around at what was uh, going on, and then went back outside of Jerusalem and then to Bethany, which is just, just outside of uh, Jerusalem, the city proper. Tuesday, uh, they get up again and they leave uh, Bethany and they are heading to uh, Jerusalem. And as they are heading to Jerusalem, they pass a fig tree along uh, the side of the road. Not the first service, I use this plant as a fig tree, but it's obviously it's not a fig tree. And I'm going to scoot it out for just an object lesson for you as we work through the sermon today. But Jesus passes by uh, the fig tree, and the Bible says that it's not the season for figs. So as he's passing by, he sees it from a distance, and he can tell it's a fig tree because it has leaves that are fig tree leaves, just like you or I might look up at a tree, and we might be able to tell that's a maple because it has maple leaves, or an oak because it has oak leaves. Jesus was able to kind of look from a distance and see, okay, that's a, a fig tree and he walks up to the fig tree and what he's looking for is something to eat on the fig tree but Mark tells us that it wasn't the season for figs and so Jesus curses the tree which to our mind seems really unusual for Jesus and in fact this is the only miracle of destruction that Jesus performs Every other miracle is a miracle of life or a miracle of healing or a miracle of grace to people. And in the scriptures, this is the only miracle of destruction that Jesus performs. And as we read through that passage, it sort of makes us think a little, what, what is Jesus doing here? He, he created the fig tree and he created the fig tree to give fruit in a certain season. And now he's upset that he comes to the fig tree at the wrong time expecting fruit and he curses the tree. And then after he curses the tree, he continues on uh, to uh, the temple, and he goes in to the temple. Remember, he had looked around the night previously, and now he is in the temple, and Jesus is upset again, and he is overturning the money changers. He's overturning those who are selling uh, animals and doves to those who are coming in in order to worship. He really upsets things, and then that night, he leaves the city, and he goes back out to uh, Bethany and the chief priests and the scribes and others are so upset at what Jesus has done. They're upset that he has uh, upset the temple and that he's done all these things in the day prior. And uh, he then goes out into Bethany and then he comes the next morning they get up and they walk by the tree and Peter sees the tree and now it is withered. And the scripture says that it has withered from the roots up. And Jesus then gives them a teaching right after that and says, have faith in God. If you pray and ask the Lord for something, have faith in God that he will perform it. I find this story to be very, very curious, very interesting, and probably uh, one of the more difficult in the Gospels for us to uh, really understand without digging in and understanding some of the backstory that is uh, behind this particular passage. But as we work through the text uh, this morning, I want to 
to, uh, by God's grace, remind you of three things that I think speak to us out of the text. One, at the beginning of this passage, we see that Jesus is hungry. Jesus is hungry. As Jesus gets to the temple, we see that Jesus is zealous. He's zealous for his house to be a house of prayer. And then finally, at the end of the text, we see that Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to answer our prayers. So begin with the understanding that Jesus is hungry. When Jesus approached the fig tree, Mark is clear to tell us that it wasn't the season for figs. And so if we're reading through that passage, we again, we wonder, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? If it wasn't the season for figs, if he couldn't have naturally expected to be able to eat from the tree. But what happened in the early part of the spring when the fig tree began to have life in it again, it would begin to put out a bud on the tree. And those buds were edible. And the buds were the first things to come out of the fig tree. And after the bud came, then the leaves would begin uh, to form and to come out. So Jesus, from a distance, seeing the fig tree, as he was looking at it from a distance, and he sees the leaves that have formed as he approached the fig tree, and he began to inspect it, what he would expect to find was small buds of fruit that were beginning to form. And we know from other scriptures in the Old Testament and from history that those buds were actually edible. There was something that someone could go and pick and eat off of the tree. It wasn't the full fig, but it was the beginning of fruit that was nonetheless edible, even though you were expecting a harvest later in September or October. So again, the picture here is Jesus sees the leaves, and if the leaves are on the fig tree then there ought to also be a bud on the fig tree, which would have been edible. Jesus was hungry, and he was looking for something to eat. But when he comes up and inspects the tree, he sees no evidence of fruit, no evidence of something that is budding, no evidence of something that is beginning uh, to grow. And you and I in our life, one of the things that we don't know is we don't know when the Lord Jesus Christ will come by. We don't know when the Lord Jesus Christ will meet us. But what we do know is that when that opportunity and when that day comes, the Lord Jesus Christ will expect to see fruit. When Jesus comes by, whether it's budding fruit or whether it's fruit that's fully ripen, the Lord Jesus Christ expects to see in you and me the fruit of the gospel. I've told you many times before, I grew up on a farm, and I can remember my, my granddad or my dad or my cousins at times when the farm had been plowed and it had been uh, sowed with seed. A few weeks after the seed, someone might dig down in the row and begin to look at the seed to see if it's beginning to germinate, if it's beginning to put up something that will eventually begin uh, to produce fruit. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ looks for in you and in me. There are some of us in our life, we may only have budding fruit. And there are some of us in our life who may have fruit that is ripe and ready for the harvest. But what the Lord expects is for each of us to be at some spot along the way. Because if my uncle or if my cousin or if my dad were to dig down in the row and after a couple weeks or after a month or after a month and a half, the seed is still there and something's wrong, it's considered bad seed. 
It's considered that there's something wrong in the seed, and oftentimes what would happen if it wasn't going to make and there was something wrong and it wasn't going right, the only thing that was fit was to plow up the whole field and to start over again. So Jesus comes and he desires to see fruit in our life. And the Christian life is one in which you and I must always be growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's hungry to see fruit in your life. There is never a plateau in your walk with the Lord. You and I must always be seeking more of Him, must always be growing in His grace, must always be growing in the fruit of the Spirit because the Lord Jesus Christ is hungry to see in you and me the growth of the spiritual fruit of the gospel. The Lord is not pleased when he comes and he sees someone showboating. He sees someone just putting on. He sees someone with all the beauty of the leaves that says there should be fruit there, but when he comes and inspects, there is nothing there of any heavenly good. He desires to see fruit in our life. And the beauty is that in the midst of your struggle and the midst of whatever challenge you find in your life, that you can bear good fruit during that season. As I was studying for this message, I was reminded of the Apostle Paul's statement to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 21. He talks about his struggles in serving the church. And he says he's been in prison. He's been beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked, a night and a day, adrift in the sea, on uh, frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brethren, the stress and the pressure of his concern for the churches. And he goes on to write in Second. Corinthians chapter 12, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties on behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then he is strong. What we often want to do as believers is pray for full and sure deliverance out of the challenge and that is our singular focus, but the Lord Jesus Christ wants to walk with you, hold your hand through the difficulty and through the muck of life so that he can grow in you the spiritual fruit that he desires. The difficulty that you are going through today whether it's a financial challenge, an emotional distress, whether it is something in your family, whether it's something in your work, whether it is a health challenge in your life, if you are in Christ, and that is the caveat, if you are in Christ, God is able to use it to strengthen you, to grow your spiritual muscle, that you will produce fruit for the kingdom. For the believer, when the budding fruit crumbs, there is no stopping until the fruit is fully formed and ready to harvest. There is no plateau. 
So every difficulty, every challenge, God is forming and reforming in you a desire and a longing for more of Him, a desire to exhibit the precious fruit of the Spirit, a desire to be in His Word, a desire to realize that this world is not your home, a desire to realize that I'm longing for more of heaven than I am for more of this world, a desire to be that peculiar person who's different from the world around us. Jesus is hungry to see the spiritual growth in your life. And the trials and challenges are opportunities for growth to take place even in an exponential manner. For the child of God, when the difficulty of life comes, when your focus is on Jesus, it is almost like putting miracle grow in the pot. Tell me which one of you here this morning who loves the Lord Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength have not gone through a spiritual trial or challenge in life that you've not looked back and said, God grew me through that. God strengthened me through that. God held my hand and he's more real to me now than he was back then. And if I hadn't walked through that child, I wouldn't have known how good God was. There's many of us who can testify to the goodness of God in the trial of life. And sometimes through the trials of life, it's an opportunity for God to call us up and to grow our faith in an exponential manner. And this is why the Apostle Paul says what is so crazy to the ears of the world. Therefore, I will rejoice in my sufferings. Because he knows that Jesus is able to take the sufferings and to use it for his spiritual growth to the glory of the Lord. Because Jesus is hungry to see growth in you and me for the glory of God. Jesus is also very zealous for his kingdom. And the scripture after Jesus curses the fig tree, because it's not bearing any fruit at all. He goes into the temple, and as you read through the Scripture again, if you just kind of read it on the surface level, what you think is Jesus is upset at the fig tree. He's upset at the temple. It's just a bad day. He didn't get breakfast that morning. He's hungry. He's angry. He's acting out. What is going on? But the fig tree is a parable for what had been going on in the temple. Jesus is taking those close to him. The fig tree becomes the parable for what was actually happening in the temple. So Jesus inspects the fig tree. There is no fruit. He curses it. The next thing he does is he goes to the temple remembering that he had inspected it the day before. At the end of verse 11, he had gone in, he had looked around, he had seen what was going on. It wasn't that he was having an outburst of anger. He knew what was coming the next morning. He knew that the zeal for his father's house was going to consume him, and he knew that he was going to drive out the money changers and those who were selling the animals at unjust prices within the temple. And he goes in to the temple, and he's desiring to see fruit, and the previous day he had seen none. And what he sees on that Tuesday morning, he sees the temple bustling with activity. There is the buying and there is the selling. There is the money changing. All of that 
necessary in some ways, but it was out of greed and taking advantage of other people. Now picture it. You are a shepherd out in the country, away from Jerusalem, and you're making the pilgrimage to the temple uh, for the Passover. And you have been preparing your best lamb for sacrifice. It's the one that you have cared for, the one that you have loved. You bring it, and to you it is without spot or blemish. There's nothing wrong with it. It has everything that is perfect, and you've come miles and miles and miles with your family, and you're carrying it along to be able to sacrifice it to the Lord because you want to offer it as an offering unto God, and you bring it, and you come to the priest, and the priest is there in order to inspect it and the priest looks at the animal that you have brought and he says uh, that's not going to work well you can't go back home and pick one up and bring it back you can't go back to where you were it's too far away and you won't be there in time to offer the sacrifice you can't go back so what do you do well the religious leaders who say that sacrifice is not good enough, say to you, well, here we have animals ready for the purchase that are already temple approved. You just buy one of our animals. And an animal that would normally have maybe cost you $20 now is at the wonderful price of $99.95. Taking advantage, someone with a sincere heart coming to offer a sacrifice to God and those in the priestly and temple leadership trying to make money for themselves, overcharging on sacrifice on sacrificial animals. And if you had to come and you had to pay the temple tax, a temple tax was required in a uh, certain type of money. Let's say for our purposes, let's say it was in dollar bills. You were required to give a dollar for the temple tax, but you weren't where, you did not grow up, you did not exist. Your uh, country was not where they had dollars. So you brought your pesos with you. And you brought them to the temple. And you knew there would be people who were going to exchange your pesos for dollars in order that you could pay the temple tax. And let's say it's an it's a equal, equal trade. One peso to one dollar. Normally. You come to pay your tax and the religious leaders say, oh, we can't do that here. You have your peso, it's going to cost you five pesos to get one dollar. And so this is what was going on in the religious complex, the center of Jewish worship, the place where people were coming to get in touch with the Lord and to pray and to offer sacrifice unto God. There were people who had come in their religious garments. They were beautiful on the outside, but Jesus says there were whited sepulchers on the inside, and they saw the poor and the downcast and the downtrodden and those who didn't have anything else, and they took advantage of each and every one for their own enrichment. And Jesus sees it, and he's having none of it. And just like he cursed the fig tree, he cursed the temple. Jesus will not put up with false worship that takes advantage of other people. He will not tolerate it. He's zealous for his house. He's zealous for his people. He overturns the money changers. He opens up 
the doors with the animals. He cast them out. He tells the people who are coming into the city, who are traipsing through the temple, carrying all these things to, to sell. He makes them get out. And he says, this is not what this place is about. It is to be a house of prayer for all nations. A scripture that comes out of Isaiah 56 and 7. Isaiah 56 was a message to the foreigners outside of Israel that God has a plan for you too. The Jews had come to think that the temple and religious worship was just for them. But God says the temple was to be a place, a place of intercession for all nations. The Jewish worship, God choosing Jewish people to come out and to be his own people, were that they would be a people of prayer for all nations, that the nations would be blessed. But they desired to enrich themselves. They desired to make it a place of power and authority. And when Jesus comes in, they don't like that Jesus and they want to kill Jesus and they, they want him to go away. And what they had done, the place, the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be a place for the nations to come and worship God, they had made it a sleazy strip mall. A place where people were taken advantage of because of their religious devotion. When they should have been praying for the nations, they were taking advantage of the nations. And Jesus was zealous and he cleaned up the mess and he cursed those who were taking advantage of other people. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Like the Jews, you and I often can be tempted to think we're the only ones who are going through this particular difficulty. I'm the only one. There's no one else. And I'm the only one that's deserving of God's grace in this moment. Or God doesn't care about me. He's left me to suffer. When things don't come together on our timetable. It's also the temptation as a church to think we're the only one that's doing it right. We're the only ones that are doing it really according to Scripture. All those other ones out there, they don't know what they're doing. They're not really doing the gospel. It's just us. Like the Jews, we can become prideful in what we do. And the thing that continues to put us at the feet of the cross is recognizing that corporately our responsibility is to be a place of prayer for the nations. This is why on Sunday evenings we gather corporately to teach ourselves that it is important for us to pray. This is why we pray on Sunday morning. You may think they pray a lot. Yes, we pray a lot and wish to God we would pray more. God teach us to pray. God teach us to understand. Teach us how to do it. I think when I think in my own mind, how do I pray? I think I'm not sure. I don't quite know. I talk, but is that the right thing? So people say to listen. I try to listen. I try to sing. I try to do this. I try to do that. God, teach me how to pray. Teach me, oh Lord, that our church should be a place of prayer because the temptation is for it to be a place of a lot of activity. Because if you were to walk in and you were to look at the temple, what you would say is, man, they got stuff going on there. 
There is a lot of activity happening at the temple. Did you see all the people that were coming and going? And man, people were giving money. They were doing all kinds of things at the temple. It was amazing to be at the temple. And Jesus says, I don't want any of that. What I want is a place where people can come and pray and they're going to intercede for the nations and they're going to pray that the gospel will go to Pakistan and they're going to pray that the gospel will go to other places where the gospel can't be preached right now. And we're going to pray that God will raise up leaders that where there aren't leaders. And we're going to pray that some of these teenagers, they feel the call of God and they go to these places where the gospel witness has not been heard. His house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus had zeal for these things. We will not be a church that gets caught up in the production of ministry. That's not what we're going to be about. We may not get it right every time, but I pray there is enough of us here to hold one another accountable to say we are experiencing mission drift, Robert. Chris, we're experiencing mission drift right now. We were focused on prayer, but now we're, we're focused over here, and this doesn't seem to be in line with the gospel. we got to bring it back. And I will say this, that if no one brings it back, if it keeps drifting and drifting, find somewhere where it's not. Find somewhere where the gospel's being preached. Find somewhere where people are zealous for Jesus. But right now, I pray that it's us. We want to be zealous for Jesus. We want to long after Jesus. I shared this in the, in the first service. Jonathan Edwards, great pastor who is uh, often credited with kind of the, the start of the great awakening uh, back in the 1700s. And he, he preached at the Northampton church and he shared the gospel and people were miraculously touched and he pastored there for like 30 years. And at the end of his tenure, he was kicked out by his congregation because he believed that communion should only be received by believers. That unbelievers should not be recipients of communion. He did what many of the old time preachers called fencing the table meaning that the preacher would kind of fence the table to make sure that only believers are receiving communion because he cared for the people so much that he didn't want an unbeliever to receive communion and therefore, as the scripture says, drink damnation unto themselves. And so they would fence the table and Edwards believed firmly that communion was something that should be received by those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And his church kicked him out because of his stance on that doctrine. And today, my understanding is that church is still there, and yet the doctrines that it stands upon are so errant and so far out of the biblical idea, biblical orthodoxy, that Edwards would have no connection or no recognition of it. Mission drift. Mission drift. You and I must be zealous for the things of the Lord. We must be zealous in our own life that the daily, day-to-day grind of our lives does not get in the way of our zeal for Jesus. Not every single one of us can tell when we're growing cold to the gospel. 
Jesus is hungry, Jesus is zealous, and Jesus is faithful. When they left the temple, they passed by the fig tree again. And Peter noticed the fig tree the next day and that it had withered. And Mark specifically says it had withered from the roots up. So it wasn't something like a beating sun that caused it to wither. It was something within the root system. Get the picture there. Something in the root system that had caused it to wither. And Jesus takes that lesson and he turns it into a lesson on faith. Verse 22, Jesus says, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Now, again, a lot of people pull that out and they say, uh, I'm going to, you know, believe it. And if I believe it and pray it, God is bound to answer this prayer. And they stomp their foot and snap their fingers and they believe that God has got to do this thing and they've ripped it right out of the context in which it exists. And what it exists in is the context of zealousness for the things of the Lord. Zealousness and a desire for the things of the Lord. If you say to this mountain, this mountain of a messed up temple, this mountain of trees that don't produce fruit, which is the metaphor for the messed up temple, when your religious worship gets askew and you say to that mountain, I can't move it, I don't know how to deal with it, I don't know how to manage it. When you say to that mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, and you don't doubt in your heart, but you know that Jesus Christ is working in and through you, it will happen. When you have faith in God, the mountain that is hindering your spiritual growth can and will be removed when you believe that Jesus is able to do it and that he is faithful to answer your prayers. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, it did not immediately wither, but it happened a day later. Not everything we ask the Lord for happens like that. Sometimes it does. Most often it doesn't because it teaches us to have grace, uh, have, have an understanding of his grace towards us day by day. When Jesus went in and he cursed the temple, the very next day, I'm sure, the religious leaders were turning their tables back over. They were shooing the animals back up into their cages. The money changers were pulling their chairs up to their desks. And the same exact thing continued to go on that had gone on all the time before Jesus cleansed the temple. For about 40 years. For about 40 years after Jesus had cursed the temple. And then in AD 70, the emperor Titus came in and he seized Jerusalem and not one stone, according to the prophetic word of Jesus, was left upon another. Sometimes you may see that mountain removed like that. Sometimes it may be an act of faith to know, God, you have spoken to me. God, this is your will. This is your plan. And I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to believe in the opportunity that you have set before me. I'm going to trust your word that you are working it out for my good and your glory, oh Lord. And I'm going to wait patiently before you. And as I'm waiting patiently before you, Lord Jesus, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to trust in your promises. I'm going to know that they are yes and amen. And sometimes it might be a 40-year wait. 
It might be a 40-year slog of continuing to fight the fight of faith, to continuing to grow in your spiritual maturity. But this I can tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ is faithful. He is faithful to answer your prayer. He is faithful to deliver you from your challenge. He is faithful to provide for you. He is faithful to care for you. When you have entrusted whatever it is to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is faithful to work it out for your good and for his glory. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 and 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And Jesus is zealous for his temple. He's zealous for his temple. And he is faithful to help you clean out all the junk that is hindering your spiritual life. And as you pray and as you seek him, your eyes become more focused on him than the junk that you're dealing with. And the Lord Jesus Christ throws it out of your life. He is faithful. He is faithful to help you. I'm going to close by reading to you out of Luke chapter 18, which Jesus speaks and it relates uh, in concept to this passage. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, the religious guy, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. As you seek after the Lord and as you long after him, I'm here to tell you, as we've talked about in other times, whatever junk you're dealing with, whatever's in your life, whatever you find yourself in, it is nothing for the Lord. And you can have freedom from that. You can have a peace from that, that God is working on your behalf. And there's times when you need other people to intercede for you and times when you need other people to pray for you. And what you need to be willing to do is to open up and to share what's going on. You need to find someone who is trusted and open up and to share with them what is going on, that there will be those who will intercede and to pray for you. And as in the first service, I'd like to close like this in the second service. If you need specific prayer, you need someone to come alongside you and pray for you. I'm going to welcome you to come to the altar as they come to play this morning. But I want us more specifically to pray for our local church. To pray that God would help us. To pray that God would help us to be a place where we see the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ working it out in the lives of his people. That we would be zealous that this place would be a house of prayer for all nations. 
That God in this place would teach us how to pray. That God would teach us how to understand his word. That God would teach us how to long after him. That God would teach us not to look at people as if they, uh, uh, in light of their sin, but God would teach us to look at people in light of the cross. That God would help us to be faithful towards that end. So I'm going to open in prayer and I'm going to ask that two or three people would come and lead us in a time of prayer. And then I'm going to ask Brother Chris Chapel to con- conclude us. So if the Lord moves upon you to pray for this local church, I'm going to ask you to come and to pray that we would be a faithful people. That God would help us and that God would lead us. So Lord Jesus, we pray right now for your mercy and grace in our life. And God, I pray for this local church. I pray, God, that you would help us to be a faithful people. God, to not get caught up in the production of ministry, but to be focused, oh Lord Jesus, in being a house of prayer for the nations. Lord, let that be our labor. Let that be our desire. Let that be our focus, oh Lord. That we would long after you, knowing that you are jealous, oh God that your house would be a house of prayer. Help us to be a faithful people, to seek after you earnestly, O Lord. And we thank you for it, O God. Thank you for your presence here this morning, and thank you for your grace, O Lord. We love you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. If you feel led to pray for this local church, I'm going to invite you to come in these next few moments. Lead us in a time of prayer.